Hello, and welcome to the first August edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and in this programme I'm talking to Mark Linus, author of Six Degrees, Our Future on a Hotter Planet, which won the UK's prestigious Royal Society Science Book Prize in June this year. Mark's book is an alarming yet never alarmist account of what will happen as global temperatures rise. We know that they're going to rise by at least two degrees, but what changes might we see if they rise by three, four, five, and even six? I asked him first about the significance of his upper limit of six degrees. Well, six degrees isn't my idea. It's it's come from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, from the two and a half thousand expert scientists who've been conducting these seven yearly expert reviews of the climate science and publishing them via the UN. And the projections, obviously, from the 2001 third assessment report were for between 1.4 and 5.8 degrees warming by the end of the century. Uh, that's been raised to 6.4 in the worst case scenario in the latest fourth assessment report. But anyway, either way, it's however you, however you cut it, it's, it's between 1 and 6 degrees. And so I just wanted to divide them up conceptually and, as you say, just figure out what would happen degree by degree as as the planet warmed. So from two upwards, they're what-if scenarios. Up to two, it's, it's pretty much going to happen. But so, so I've forever been trying to tell people that this shouldn't be depressing. It's not as if we're going to necessarily get to the worst case scenario, even though it does look rather like it. Um, but they're, you know, it's a sort of warning, they're warning scenarios for what we have to try and avoid. And you write in the book about a particular research paper that you read a number of years ago, which convinced you <clears throat> of the, the necessity of writing this book. Can you say a bit about what, what stimulated you in that to, to set about this task? Well, it was a long time now. It was back in 2000, and it was the first major paper on carbon cycle feedbacks. Um, and I think it was called something like Accelerated um, Carbon Cycle Feedbacks in an Integrated Climate Model, or something like that, published by Hadley Centre people, including Peter Cox and Richard Betts, in Nature, as I say, in 2000. And it was the first attempt to really quantify the the feedback that you get when you warm the terrestrial biosphere and thereby release more carbon from the soils and from the vegetation. Uh, up until that point, the climate models had just represented the biosphere as a given and hadn't actually had it hadn't actually factored it in as a dynamic process in itself which would either enhance or mitigate warming and they found out through the model that it would enhance warming and by perhaps up to a degree and a half by the end of the century so it was a it's a pretty critical tipping point in the earth system which has become better and better represented through modeling you know since that point but that that was such an important paper also because it showed for the first time amazon dieback the possibility, theoretical possibility of the disappearance of almost the whole of the Amazon and uh, that, that turning into a sort of desert, savannah-type ecosystem within this century. And so that, that for me, was a tremendous wake-up call and I, I've, I've, I felt it needed much greater exposure. You mentioned tipping points, and that's something which comes across very strongly, that it's not a, a gradual curve, that along the process of those six degrees, as we, as we, if we go through them, there are certain critical points at which the Earth system would would flip into reverse or entire ecosystems would collapse and then that there would be this sort of feedback mm-hmm. loop created. I mean, which, which, which points do you think are the, the most critical ones uh, if we were to go through those through that cycle? Well, there's different tipping points in different parts of the Earth system, obviously. I mean, there's social tipping points as well. A tipping point whereby society moves in a rapidly in a low-carbon direction is one which we should look forward to if we're not there already. But... 
I mean, the, some of the tipping points happen quite early on. For example, the disappearance of the Arctic sea ice cap. And it's interesting seeing how the science has moved on this. It wasn't supposed to happen until the latter part of the century, 2085 or something. And now it could happen within the next 10 years because of the very rapid rate of disappearance. And so that's a classic example of a positive feedback that you get. Once the ice has is, is, is melted, then you don't get the high albedo, which isn't reflecting the sun anymore, and you get much more absorption of heat in the, in the darker ocean. And that accelerates further, further melting. And once it's gone, of course, that's quite an important tipping point in terms of the Earth's energy balance that you don't then have the in the summer months anyway in the Arctic. You don't have that that huge area of white ice reflecting the sun. So what what will happen to the amount of solar radiation being absorbed by the planet? I mean, I, I don't think that's been properly modelled yet. So that's, that's an important tipping point, and it's one we're going to have to deal with. There are other ones in, in terms of the disappearance of ice sheets. Jim Hansen's talked a lot about the ice dynamics, which could kill off Greenland and perhaps even Antarctica what, how long would this take is anybody's guess but it, it really depends on again things which aren't properly understood in terms of how rapidly glaciers slip into the sea how, how, how rapidly ice sheets can melt up because in previous historical analogies like the end of the last ice age the ice sheets broke up very very rapidly giving you know, at one point a metre of sea level rise every 20 years but with a much lower level of forcing I mean the, the CO2 levels were <laughs> well, obviously at pre-industrial levels and the amount of solar forcing that you get from transition between ice ages is, is, is pretty small. The whole process, which is an enormous process, giving uh, you know a difference of 5 or 6 degrees between an ice age and an interglacial, the whole, pro- whole process depends on positive feedbacks. So we know they're essential, uh, integral to how the Earth system operates. We just don't know exactly what, where they're triggered and how, what the magnitude of them would, would be. You mentioned the disappearance of the Greenland ice sheet and... Here we are sitting in Oxford, which is one of the, the places in the country furthest from the sea. And in your book, you say that if the Greenland ice sheet were to melt, then sea levels could rise 50 metres and Oxford would be, a, would be a maritime town, which is quite a, quite a sobering thought. Yes, but um, over a long, very long, long time period. I mean, I don't think anyone's suggesting that could happen within a century. Mm. And it gets slightly misleading, actually, because there was the Sunday Times magazine did a serialisation of my book and they, had, they, they actually had a... a a, a map of what the British Isles would look like with, I think it's 60 metres of sea level rise, and it looks basically like an archipelago and you lose half of England um, but they didn't say that I wasn't suggesting this would happen within our lifetime, so in some ways you, you, you get into slightly catastrophist, alarmist type territory when you talk about these things, if you don't have the caveat of saying, well this is something which is going to take a very long time to happen. So actually I think sea level rise is one of is, is, is a less grave problem than some of the other ones which we're facing much more imminently because it's a very slow process. I mean yes it's, it's pretty bad news if you live on the coast like a lot of humanity does but because it's so slow it's tolerable whereas the problems of, of mass extinctions of biodiversity for example are much much more difficult to deal with um, and same with problems of more rapid problems like droughts and extreme weather floods things like that. Uh, food supply collapse I mean we, we're seeing Obviously, problems with food, the world's food supply at the moment, which have, have raised prices significantly. Um, obviously, that's not specifically climatic, but the problem, harvest problems which are related to climate change have, have caused some of this partly. So there are much more urgent and imminent concerns, I think, than sea level rise. But you, you raise the, the issue of time and how long change will take and our capability to, to cope with it. And it would be fair to say that things are happening quicker than earlier predictions would, would, would have suggested it, things tend to be speeding up Yes, that's, it's certainly true that the direction of scientific discovery seems to be that things are always worse than we originally thought and things are changing within the 
planetary system itself more rapidly than the model suggested that, that they ever would. And you can see that in particular for the Arctic sea ice. If you look at the the, the spread of the models, the actual disappear rate of disappearance has been way below even the worst case scenario that any model ever came up with. So that suggests that the processes and the rapidity of the processes and the feedbacks within them aren't properly captured by the models. So there is a general, and there's also a general trend towards being conservative, conservative in terms of your projections because you don't want to you don't want to be labelled as being alarmist in a very politicised debate. And so the IPCC in particular and a lot of the scientific discourse has been quite conservative in nature in terms of the projections it's saying. It's about where, where Greenland will be in the year 3000 something. Actually, actually, that doesn't have such a lot of policy relevance. It's where Greenland will be in the year 2050 or 2100, which is crucial to us. Yes, you mentioned, and you mentioned this question of being taken as alarmist, and that must be something you you thought about before you, you wrote this book, how, how to judge it so that people were aware of the severity, the potential severity, but at the same time weren't frightened into a, a sense of impotence. Well, I think I got it slightly wrong, actually. The first editions of the book, I devoted quite a lot of time to the methane hydrates issue. You know, what would happen if you had large-scale methane outgassing from the ocean? Could you get sort of huge-scale atmospheric explosions which would wipe out whole cities? You know, and I, I devoted a couple of pages to that, which then has then been focused on as this guy is completely mad. He's saying that the, you know, there's going to be you know, huge methane firebombs erupting across continents. And I mean, the, the point of talking about this at all was that it's a it's a potential mechanism in, uh, for, for previous mass extinctions. It's only a theory. Um, and, and in the later editions, I made it a lot clearer that this is extremely unlikely because I hadn't actually attached any probability when I was discussing it. So things like that, that you have to be quite careful and you have to, you have to judge it carefully. But having said that, you know, if we see global warming of six degrees, then it really is wipeout time for most of humanity and most of life on Earth. And I have no qualms about saying that because I think it's eminently justified by the science. So in terms of the book as a whole, I just had to make sure that everything I did was backed up by by the peer-reviewed literature, and that's the origin of all of the information that I'm dealing with. So I don't think you can get a better source. I think that's, I mean, that's one of the positive things that I took from the book, that there is so much intelligent research going on and so much knowledge building up about the way the, the climate and our effect on it interacts that, that was absent, you know, just a few decades ago. And that, that at least is, is one reason for being optimistic to a degree that we can we can make judgments based on the quality of the research that you that you bring to bear in the book yeah and and there's a very common fallacy that people ordinary people always come up with which is sort of skeptics in particular when they say well they thought a new ice age was happening in the 1970s didn't they or you know back in the 50s people thought that such and such you know um well that's may be true up to a point but actually we didn't understand nearly as much about the planet as we now do so we're much better able to model and explain planetary systems and therefore make projections about the future than we were back in the 1970s but p people like to, to to take refuge in this idea that we're really quite ignorant about the planet therefore we can't say anything therefore we can more or less continue with business as usual which in my view is a is a very dangerous and complacent logical fallacy i heard on the radio in a program that was about um the Reith Lectures, they were looking at 60 years of Reith Lectures, and they played a clip from, I think it was almost exactly 40 years ago, I can't remember who the lecturer was, but he was describing anthropogenic climate change in ways that we would we would absolutely relate to today. He, he didn't say anything that would be taken to have been out of step with um, the way that we see it today. And I was struck by by just how, you know, how much knowledge 
there was then, but it has taken so long to to come into to public discourse and to be accepted by 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 politicians. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the chemistry of this is more than a century old. Um, Arrhenius and, and John Tyndall were, you know, writing about this and conducting experiments from the latter part of the nineteenth century. Um, so, the the basic physics of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases being opaque to infrared short uh, long wave radiation as opposed to short wave radiation coming into the atmosphere had been known for a very long time and facts and back of the envelope calculations were made then which more or less stand the test of time a century later so, uh, but uh, i think i think what's happened is that um it, this because this, we're talking about very very powerful vested interests in terms of who, who, which deliver energy for the in, industrialized society, which is of course the root of everything that happens in in, a, in our world, is based on energy. So it's, you couldn't get a more p- important area uh, caught onto this very early on that this was going to mean a great threat to their to their well investments, and so this became politicized before science had time to actually explain to the population at large what <laughs> what the story was and so people found, people heard the anti story at the same time as they heard the real the real scientific story and the two have been conflated ever since and we are a species you mentioned evolutionary psychology in the book and we are a species which is good at being short termist and postponing difficult decisions and going for the easy choice over the the difficult choice you talk at the end of the book about ways in which individuals can make a difference to their lives. But at the same time, earlier in the book, you've talked about China and how China is on a collision course with the planet, I think is how you how you put it. So obviously, what we do as individuals can have an impact, but there's got to be something happening at a global level between governments in order for any real impact to, to happen. Yes, I mean, uh, everyone writes about China these days, don't they? I've lost count of the number of times I've heard of people repeating this factoid about China building two power stations every week or one or whatever. It's always slightly different. Mm. But the fact is clearly true that developing countries have enormous potential to accelerate emissions over the century ahead in a way which the industrialised world doesn't because our our emissions are mainly historical ones. So that's a problem we're going to have to get to grips with in terms of how we regulate carbon globally. And that's not something that really we can all do very much about as individuals, except as part of a collective political solution. Our relevance as individuals isn't so much about changing our light bulbs and going carbon neutral, I mean, which of course are important, but they're, they're about getting politicians to, to make the framework arrangements that we need at the international UN level. So we need millions of people to join this join this fight if you like and that 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 is an expressly political effort and do you see positive signs that this is going to happen sufficiently quickly because there's a there's a sense that we could we could do too little too late that the signals are there but are we responding to them too weakly in order to actually affect political change do you think well, I wrote about it in The Guardian this week, actually. We did some scenario modelling with this um, think tank called the Stockholm Network, looking at what the tem- temperature implications would be of the current policy process, if you like, which has been which we called agree and ignore, because we've had lots of agreements being made and then backtracking and lack of compliance and things. Just look at Canada with Kyoto, for example. So that was the, that was the pessimistic scenario. The optimistic scenario 
for the Kyoto process was called um, Kyoto Plus, where we have a new framework deal and we begin to regulate carbon and countries come on board and stuff like that. But that's the best we could hope for from the Kyoto process. And then we had a, a different frame, a different scenario called Step Change, where we would see a whole different approach where you're not actually regulating emissions at all at the national level, you're regulating production of carbon from the ground. And so you, you go for a much clearer, simpler bottleneck, which is the companies who are producing coal and oil and gas, rather than all this haggling between governments about who should take the biggest burden. And all of these scenarios actually see us seeing quite a quite serious temperature rise now. Um, step change gets us the best outcome with about 2.8 degrees, which is still beyond several tipping points, and well into mass extinction territory. Whereas Kyoto gets us 3.3, and Agree and Ignore, which is the, chain, the track we're currently on, gets us about 4.8, so well into my five-degree world, with the which sees you know, almost unimaginable catastrophic um, impacts. So it's a it's a pretty dire situation, and I, I think politics, as usual, actually is a much more risky option than many people realise. And the book talks about six degrees, but the other number that really should stick in the reader's head is seven, because seven is the number of years that you think we've got to affect real change before we before we pass beyond the the limits of of controlling it to to under two degrees. Uh, yes, but actually, I think it's probably worse than that. I don't think we can uh, we can conceivably keep temperatures within two degrees unless there's a some total transformation i mean i mean and i mean a very rapid transformation outside of what anyone would con- currently consider politically plausible i mean even if our step change scenario saw emissions global emissions peak by 2017 so it's a very very optimistic scenario and it still sees temperatures rising closer to two degrees three degrees rather so the idea that we can keep temperatures below two degrees seems seems quite fanciful um, which is a, a pretty disastrous situation that we that we seem to be in. Um, I mean, there is a movement afoot to get CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere back down to 350, 350.org, I think it's called, which which you know which I would support. But that that presupposes that we can not only limit emissions very rapidly, but that we can also remove CO2, which is already in the atmosphere, because of course we're we're way above 350 now. But that may well be what's needed to avert to avert two degrees I think anything else and we're going to go way past it and you're very clear in the book that there is no magic bullet we shouldn't be we shouldn't be hanging on for some single techno fix that'll make it all fine and then we can just continue living as we have always lived and you outline a theory called the wedge theory can you say a little bit about how how the wedge theory brings together various elements to 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 try to tackle climate change this is work produced, I think, originally in 2004 by Stephen Sokolow and um, I can't remember his name, but Sokolow and Pakalo at, at Princeton University. And all, all, I mean, it's not really a theory. All they were doing was quantifying the different energy technologies which would be needed to to stabilize emissions by 2050. So, I mean, so emissions would be at the current level in 2050. So, much, much too high to avoid climate change, but still to just to get some sense of the of the magnitude of the task. And they 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 rule out. Any new tech being beguiled by new technologies, as they put it. This is just a monumental task that we have to conduct with technologies that we already have, tools that we already have. And they talk about, well, a wedge is a, a billion tonnes of carbon emissions avoided by 2050. And, you know, it's, it's two million wind turbines to, for one wedge, for example, a um, huge area of solar panels. Uh, doubling the nuclear capacity generating capacity things like that so it's just it, it's just a it's a, it's a bit of a thought experiment but it's just a very useful way of quantifying the the technological well the investment the energy investments that's needed to, to start to climb back from the carbon abyss if if you like 
but you know it, it, you can read it two different ways you can either say my god this is a monumental task which we will never achieve or you can say okay well it's been it's, once it's been split up into wedges I can more or less see what's necessary and that really just you know people are optimists or pessimists and it sort of depends which side of the curve you fall on it's, it's a way of breaking it down and making it I suppose seem a bit more manageable you are very clear that biofuels is a complete dead end and actually maybe counterproductive yes and investment in biofuels is, is hopefully beginning to fall i mean uh, i'm not in the business of making stock market predictions but biofuels is still in, in, included in the renewable technology field for a lot of these clean tech funds whereas biofuels clearly first generation biofuels have no future and second generation biofuels don't either in my opinion because they're essentially increasing the human footprint still further. I mean, we're, we're then extracting energy not just from underground, but from the biosphere all around us, which is already under huge pressure because of because of, of, of farming, land use change, general population pressure, things like that. So there's no way we can t- continue to or start to harvest energy from, from, from terrestrial vegetation. I mean, the idea is absurd and always was. So, you know, even at the very basic level, biofuels were, were always going to be a disaster, and most of us warned about it from the very beginning. But that was ignored by policymakers who went rushing into setting up market incentives to get biofuels adopted, and still do. I mean, biofuels are—it's it's a classic example of what happens if you distort a, a market. This—you know—I would I would call for a free market approach to this, where we eliminate energy subsidies for, for for things which are obviously going to make the problem far worse. And something you don't, I think, touch on as a possible remedy or part of a remedy is population control. Is that something that? You you don't see as um, you know a lever that we can we can pull in any in any way. No, I do. It's just that I, I didn't want to write a book which is about every single facet of the human environmental crisis. Obviously, the the, the greater extent that we can reduce the human fertility and and keep keep population from peaking at too high a level, the better. And that I think is is probably one of the three main areas we've got to focus on: carbon emissions, population, and um, you know other other impact. I'd say the three would be biodiversity, carbon emissions, and population, in fact. And people have this idea that there's a great taboo about talking about population, which which there really isn't, actually. And a lot of environmentalists are very clear about this, including jo- people like Jonathan Porritt. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one that we know how to deal with, but it's got all tied up in the abortion debate and the Bush administration, things like that. Um, but, yeah, you know, we could, we could begin to reduce population... From a, from a peak in 2050 back down to a couple of billion if we had a one-child policy applied globally. So it's not it's not a situation which is completely lost by any means. And finally, I just wanted to ask about the impact on you of writing this book. You described sitting in the Radcliffe Science Library and absorbing lots of scientific papers and and constructing from from them these scenarios. And I just wondered, did, did you did it make you angry? Or depressed at times. What kind of, what kind of sort of mental landscape did did the book come out of? Mostly, you can stay quite dispassionate, and I think most scientists live like this on a day to day basis. I remember Peter Cox and the Hadley Centre saying that sometimes you need an outsider coming in and saying to you, "You do realise what this means? It's, you're talking about the death of the Amazon here." Whereas, whereas when you're just dealing with a climate model and it's all it's all parameters and, and, and things like that, you you don't you actually don't let the emotions come to the surface. And I think I dealt with it mostly that way. So to some extent, I need outsiders to come and say to me, you do realise what this means. This means, you know, a, a really difficult, stormy future for your your own kids. And by and large, you know, I've, I'm a father of two kids and they're one and three at the moment. I, by and large, try not to think about it too deeply because, 
what are you going to, what, what's going to be achieved by that? I mean, I know that there's no such thing as a pessimistic campaigner, is there? That would achieve nothing. So I have to remain as optimistic as I can, given the reality of the situation, and go forward in a belief that we can get through this problem with a minimum of damage and we can do it in a way which makes life better for most of humanity. I was talking to Mark Linus about Six Degrees, our future on a hotter planet, which is available in paperback now. Publishers hype many books as necessary. I'd say that Mark's book is truly necessary, and I recommend it too highly. There are full details on the Podularity website at podularity.com, and also links to Mark's website. In the next programme, I'll be talking to Simon Critchley about his Book of Dead Philosophers. Until then, thank you for listening, and goodbye.